Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. to invite you then to find 2 Samuel chapter 9 this morning, page 260, page 260 in the Black Bibles or 307 in the large print Bibles if you're using them, 2 Samuel chapter 9 for our sermon this morning. Let's hear God's Word together. And David said, 2 Samuel chapter 9, David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him in to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. I don't know if you remember chapter 4. Just listen to this. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan The news about their death came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. The king said to Ziba, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons... And your servant shall till the land for him, and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that the Lord according to all that my Lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons, and Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. 
And all who lived in Zeba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Amen. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we ask in these moments that the weakness of my words and the strength and goodness of your kindness may captivate our hearts for you. For we ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. What I was going to say right at the start of the sermon is that as I've looked at this passage this week, I have found myself smiling to myself a few times. And I've smiled to myself a few times as I've realized studying this passage, I have come to have a new favorite David story, David and Mephibosheth. I guess growing up, it's David and Goliath, right? Isn't it? The favorite story, the shepherd boy against the giant. What not to love about that story? Audacious bravery, spears, stones, beheading. There's even going to be birds of prey eating dead bodies. I wonder if I can convince you this morning friends, that David and Mephibosheth, David and Mephibosheth should be top in the highlights reel of David's Instagram story. This is the thing that stands out in glorious technicolor in David's, David's rule, kindness more than killing, kindness more than killing, kindness I, I, I guess it's just what happens as you get older, isn't it? Unexpected, audacious kindness. Is there anything more beautiful? I want to be up front with you right this morning, right at the start as we begin. I am not going to tell you this morning that David was kind, so you should be kind. I should be kind. We should be kind. You, you should be kind. I hope you'll want to be like David here. Yes, I hope, I hope you'll, you'll be able to tell this morning where you are in relation to God's kingdom by the kindness of your heart. But remember, friends, David here is God's king. David is the Lord's anointed. I'm going to tell you that if you think David is kind this morning, if you think he is kind then turn your eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ and look at Him, the true King. Oh, David here in this glorious chapter is a shadow king. He's a, a reflection king, a, a, an image king, pointing forward to the kindness of the ultimate king. This is a window this morning to let the light of the true king in into our hearts and our lives. No, friends, as we look at this story together, there is somebody that you and I are like in this story. We are here in a way in this text, but we're not David. And so I want us to begin this morning simply by getting clear in our minds the tragic plight of this man, Mephibosheth. We're going to look at his tragic plight, then we're going to look at what David does and why he does it. Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. 
that that's going to be the defining thing about him for David. Jonathan, Saul's son. Jonathan, the son of the deposed king, the dead king. The king whose line has been cast off to the side. But the son of Jonathan is not the label that everybody uses for Mephibosheth. There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. See it again at the end, verse 13. Now he was lame in both his feet. See, here's a man whose deformity has marked his whole life. It is the very label that people use to talk about him. So somebody has pointed out that Mephibosheth is never ever mentioned in the Bible without reference to the lameness, the lameness that kept him from leading a full and active life. Mephibosheth, the cripple. Mephibosheth, the disabled. But friends, look at the passage together with me. Look what else he has lost. As well as a loss of mobility that comes from his lameness, it seems he has lost his independence, hasn't he? Verse 5, he's in the house of Machir. Somebody else is running his affairs. And as well as a loss of independence, this signals loss of inheritance. Remember, he is Saul's grandson, grandson of the former king and son of the man who could have been king, and he is living in borrowed lodgings. He's living in this place, Lodabar. That, that name, Lodabar, it means no pasture. Mephibosheth lives in a barren region in a fruitless, sterile place. That's him there living at number six in Dead End Alley at the end of the road. He lives where everything is broken. He's lost his mobility. He's lost his inheritance. He's lost his independence. He's lost his dignity. He's lost his place. Tragedy has determined this man's life beyond all repair. See how he regards himself in verse 8? A dead dog. How's that for self-esteem? Somebody meets him. How's it going, Mephibosheth? Are you having an awesome day? I'm a dead dog. There's a kind of implicit despair, isn't there, in his sense of himself. His past has marked him out in all the wrong ways, so that when we read verse 5, King David, King David, the names in verses 5 and 6 are meant to strike an ominous note as Mephibosheth is summoned to him. See how it works? Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. It's just a reminder of how dangerous this is to now be approaching the true king as someone from the line of the rejected king. Bring me the son of Saul, the son of Jonathan, into my presence. And you see, Mephibosheth knows what everybody in the, in the ancient world knew, that Mephibosheth was a threat to David's kingship because he is from the family of the former king. What do people with royal blood in royal veins do? What do they feel entitled to in time? They feel entitled to a throne, to the crown. 
And so in the ancient world, there was a simple rule, wasn't there? Solidification by liquidation. You don't just defeat the king, you wipe out his family, you wipe out the line to lay secure the throne in your hand. You wiped out the lot. So, can you imagine this man's terror coming to David? It's, it's why he does what he does in verse 6, isn't it? He falls on his face and pays homage. He thinks he's there to beg for his life, doesn't he? I think it is such subtle writing, isn't it? He came to David and he fell. He fell. Everything about this man's life is about falling. He fell from his nurse's arms after his father Jonathan had fallen in battle. And Jonathan fell because his whole house was falling. Now here probably in what Mephibosheth thinks is his last act, he throws himself at David's feet and he waits for the, the sword to fall, the last thing to fall and to end it all. And yet, lo and behold, what wonder of wonders, what is David about to do? Verse 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Oh, the kindness of David the kindness of the king. I want to ask you again, friends, this morning, who do you think you are like in the story? Who does the writer want us to identify with as saying, yeah, I'm like that. That's me. We'll come in just a moment to what David is actually doing for Mephibosheth here. It is staggering. It's sensational. But why? Why does he do it? Why does David do this? That, that, that word kindness there, look at it in verse 7, I will show you kindness. It's the same word used in verse 1. David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? See, this is where it all comes from. David is going to do something for Mephibosheth because of something he promised his father Jonathan, for Jonathan's sake. And I want us to see this morning what he promised Jonathan. I want you to just turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 20. This is the only time we're going to do this this morning. Very briefly, keep your finger in chapter 9, but turn to 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 14, page 243 in the Black Bibles, page 243. Chapter 20, verse 14, here is Jonathan and David's covenant with each other. This is Jonathan speaking, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Verse 14, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. The steadfast love of the Lord. And do not cut off your, your steadfast love from my house forever. 
when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. See what Jonathan makes David promise him? Give me and my house, David, the same steadfast love of the Lord that you have known and I have known. Give it to my house. Promise me, David. Promise me that. And friends, that word steadfast love there in verse 14 is exactly the same word as kindness in chapter 9, verse 1. Second Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 sees David looking around. He's now many years later that the land is at peace. Everything is right in the kingdom. And in, in those quiet points in the day, the, the gaps in the day, his heart still misses his dear friend Jonathan. It's what happens, isn't it? Years later, you remember your love. You look back, and he remembers a promise made to Jonathan, his friend, and he wonders, is there any way I can show that steadfast love to someone? So, so look what is happening here. Mephibosheth arrives in David's court expecting the end, but he is blissfully, wonderfully, totally unaware that he is not just entering the presence of the king, but entering the presence of a king who has bound himself by an oath an oath that Mephibosheth knows nothing about. David is someone who knows that what he does is constrained by what he has said to someone else. He needs to act for Jonathan's sake. Th those three words are the key to chapter 9, aren't they? For Jonathan's sake. The love for Jonathan who is gone still lives. It is not dead, although Jonathan is dead. And David feels it, and he, he wants to share it, and he wants to spend that love on someone in Jonathan's house. Do, do, do you remember, friends, when Jonathan lies dead on the battlefield? Do you remember what David sang about him? Your love, Jonathan, surpassed that of women. Your love, our love for each other surpassed that of women. It's not, it's not a sexual thing. It's nothing to do with sexuality. It's to do with fidelity. It's to do with faithfulness. See, Jonathan was Saul's son, and he should have been king. But Jonathan knew that God had chosen David. Do you remember his astonishing words to David? You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. I will be second. Oh, friends, David lost a friend above all friends. A friend above all friends. Listen to Matthew Henry. David had every reason to say that Jonathan's love to him was wonderful. Surely never was there the like for a man to love one who he knew was to take the crown from his head. And to be so faithful to his rival, that kind of love surpasses the highest degree of conjugal affection and constancy. This crown on my head should be mine, and it is yours, and I will be second to you. Oh, because Jonathan loved David like that, David loved him like that in return, and so Jonathan makes David promise, when you are wiping out your enemies from the earth, David, as you're doing what God has told you to do, please, David, my brother, do not wipe out my whole family. Remember mercy. Remember our steadfast love and show it to my house.
This word kindness in verse 1, here's what it means. Here's the definition. It means meeting an extreme need outside the normal run of perceived duty and arising from personal affection or pure goodness. Isn't it beautiful? Meeting an extreme need outside the normal run of perceived duty, so above and beyond what you're meant to do, and arising from personal affection or pure goodness. Where, where does this kind of love come from? Who, who does David sound like? Chapter 7, verse 15, the Lord said to David, my steadfast love will not depart from you. He's like God, isn't he? This is the character of God. This is what God does. This is how God loves. This is not mood-based love. It's not Saturday night, everything is right love. It's not appearance-based love. It's not you love me and I will give back to you love. No, it is steadfast love, love that does not flinch or waver. It doesn't waft in the wind or move with the times. It's the kind of love that means when you reach out in the dark, I will be there. Put your weight on me. Trust me, the love is steadfast. Many of you friends, many of you I I know will know the name of Benjamin Warfield. He was uh, one of the most famous uh, theologians at Princeton University. Uh, He has bequeathed to us wonderful writings. But what not many people know is the tale of Benjamin Warfield's marriage. While Warfield was studying in Leipzig in Germany, in a way that I guess only theologians can do, he doubled that study time with honeymoon. And while on honeymoon, while they were walking, he and his wife were walking in the mountains one day, they were caught in a terrific thunderstorm. And the experience of that thunderstorm, some people believe his wife was struck by lightning. The experience of that thunderstorm was such a shock to Warfield's wife, Annie, that she never fully recovered. She became more or less an invalid for her entire life. And what many people do not realize is that all that Warfield bequeathed us in his writings, his teaching, he managed to do only ever leaving her side for more than two hours at a time. His world was entirely limited to Princeton and to the care of his wife for 39 years. One of his students noted that when he saw the Warfields out walking together, the gentleness of his manner was striking proof of the loving care with which he surrounded her for 39 years. That is the power covenant exercises. That is the power of steadfast love. It is is why David does this here. It's why he is like God, isn't he? he? He's being molded here, David, being molded into the image of the true king, the greatest king. He is loving like him. And so look what he does in verse 7. Look what he does in verse 7. Here is the heart of it. David said to him, do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. He gives Mephibosheth three things there, protection, provision, and position. 
Three things, three astounding gifts. I mean, look at it. I, I think actually there is an astonishing subtlety here in the text as we read it. Did you notice that in verse one and two, and most of the way through, David is called the king. You get it in verse two. The king said to him, the king said, again and again, the king. David the king, this is Saul's enemy. And it's heightened in verse six. You get Jonathan, son of Saul, but do they come to the king? Well, yes, but they come to David. First name terms. The enemy king with the enemy grandson. What will happen? No title, just David. And David says, Mephibosheth. This is first name to first name. Look what David gives him. Protection. Do not be afraid. He gives him provision. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Isn't that interesting? He calls Saul his father. And he gives him position. You will eat at my table always. Oh, friends, what a picture of the gospel this is, of, of the glorious kindness of God to us in Jesus our King, right? Can, can, can't we see the light from Jesus' throne shining backwards here across these pages? What happens when the greatest display of love and mercy that you could ever receive is lavished on you? What happens when it's given to you? What, what do you say? Isn't it amazing that Mephibosheth does hear what David did back in chapter 7? Do you remember when God lavishes his steadfast love on David? Chapter 7, verse 18, what does he say? Who am I? Who am I that you would do that for me? You recall it? When you meet superior power showing astonishing grace and steadfast love to you, when you could be wiped from the earth, you say, who am I? Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Friends, in teaching our children every Sunday simply to say thank you to God, the, the grown-up adult version of thank you is, who am I? Oh Lord, who am I? Mephibosheth knows it, doesn't he? He knows who he is in the presence of the king. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? I want to ask you today, friends, if you know yourself. I want to ask you if you know yourself truly before God. Listen to Alistair Begg. The reason some of us have never come to trust in Christ is because we have never faced the fact that we are by our very nature at the bottom of the pile, that we are lame, that we are sinful, that we are crippled, that we are diseased. And so the message comes to us along the lines of this, God likes really nice people. You're a very nice person from, well, pick your part of town, the West End, and therefore you've got a very, very even chance of being welcomed into His eternal kingdom. No, no, not for a nanosecond. The reverse is the case. The reaction of this fellow is the right reaction to the covenant love 
of God. My God, my Lord, what love is this that pays so dearly? Um, at risk of uh, furthering my reputation as only watching TV films, uh, TV during the week when I should be working, I want to tell you about an astonishing film that I watched this past week. It is the true story of the boys in Thailand who were caught in that cave in 2018, 12 boys and their coach. The film is called 13 Lives. And although it's recent, uh, it's not, not everybody remembers it. Let me commend that film to you. One of the most staggering, amazing, truly heroic stories I've ever encountered. 13 lives trapped two and a half kilometers inside a flooded cave. 5,000 people from 17 different countries arrived to help. And over several weeks of planning and strategizing and, well, I can't spoil it too much for you, into the cave the divers go to rescue the children. I thought as I was watching it, this incredible story of heroism, and as you watch it, you think, who am I like? Oh, we, want, we want to be the divers, don't we? The, the men of valor and courage who are willing to lay down their lives to, to extract these boys facing certain death. But what does the Bible say we are? Who are we really like? I watched these frightened boys sitting on a ledge in the darkness and realized it is a picture of me and us trapped in sin blinded by darkness, that we have chosen, those boys willingly entered the cave. We've chosen, haven't we, to cut ourselves off from the light and life and the goodness of the world. We enter the darkness. Nobody made us do it. The world around us becomes a labyrinth from which we cannot escape. The only way out, the only way is for someone to come and rescue us for someone to penetrate the darkness and to be willing to give up their own life to free us from the mess we've made of everything. See, Mephibosheth here, his plight, it vivid, vividly depicts our plight, does he not? We are members of a human race fallen into sin. Just like Mephibosheth was born into a royal family, we too were born into a royal lineage. We are sons and daughters of the first king to ever walk the earth, Adam, the crown of God's creation. And when he fell, we fell too. One commentator points out that Mephibosheth's circumstances, the decisive events that shaped his life, took place without his own participation in them. He was born into a rebel line. And so are we. Listen to these words. Just as Mephibosheth lived in a region far from David's throne, so we too have fled from God's faith, God's face, and are alienated from the blessings of his love. As Jonathan's son lived in a town named No Pasture, we too have lived in a land infested with thorns and futility, unable to bear lasting fruit or to gain true satisfaction from our lives. 
like Mephibosheth, as offspring of a disgraced and outcast human race, we were born into rebellion against God and at war with the kingdom of His Son. This is why the Bible refers to unbelieving men and women as God's enemies, children of wrath, even children of the devil. Therefore, just as Mephibosheth feared to encounter David, so also the sinner is terrified to meet with God. Have you ever been terrified to meet with God? Terrified to come close to Him? Friend, if you do not think you need Jesus to meet God, you'll never taste His kindness. Remember something I said some time ago, hell is not the absence of God. No, hell is the presence of God without a mediator, without a tangible, tangible, visible, touchable token of God's steadfast love. It's true, isn't it? The sun will burn our eyes out from 92 million miles away. It's what the sun will do to you. And we expect to casually stroll into the presence of the one who made the sun. Have you ever been afraid of God? Afraid of Him because of who I am, you are, in light of who He is? It's why David has to say, doesn't he, verse 6, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Those words in the Bible always come before extraordinary promises. Very, very beautiful words in the Bible. Do not fear to, to people who have every reason to fear. You have good, powerful, normal reasons to be afraid. Me? Me, Lord, with you? No, surely not. There, there must be some mistake. And a kind king says, Do not fear. Do not be afraid. It is the kindness of the king, isn't it, to take dead dogs and treat them as sons. Isn't that it? Isn't that amazing? People who know they are nothing, verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. He goes from having nothing to having everything. There's this reversal, isn't there, at the end of the story between his house and Ziba's house. They serve him, and he eats always at the king's table, so that the final line, do you notice those final words, he was lame in his feet. At the end of the story, that terrible description is meant to make us stand up and cheer. All the way through, we've been averting our eyes from Mephibosheth, shaking our head in pity at him. But the story ends with us saying, well, what do you know? Look what just happened. Have you heard about Mephibosheth, the cripple up the road? No, you won't believe it. The, the king, the king loves him. The king loves the lame. The king adopts the unlovable. And then the Lord Jesus comes. I have not come to call the righteous, but the unrighteous, for it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
Oh, yes, we think to ourselves, that's, that, that's kind of Jesus' job, isn't it? It's what He does. He looks after weak people, sick people, forgives people. I know, friends, that some of you in this room know what it costs to love a sick person. You know what it costs oh, to love the person who is not easy to love because there is so little left of them to love you back. And you love them, and you love them. Brothers and sisters, this morning, if we do not think we are sick, if we don't think we're like the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes and the outcasts and the lame, if we do not look at them and say, that is me, we do not know ourselves. And we will certainly never know and love the Lord Jesus. Just as I am poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind, yes, all of this in you I find. Lord Jesus Christ, I come. As someone has said, if you're not astonished by this, you've got a real, real issue. Amen.